Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Barely There Theater, where we present theater to you, barely. Up this week, a play. There will be a brief message after the play is over, so stick around once the show's done. Now please, sit back, relax, and enjoy The Disaster Riots, featuring Doug Kootsley, Savannah Bay Strandon, and Tristan Tapscott. Hey, you know, Jody Magnet. Want to hear something crazy? Always. I mean, really, out of this world. I swear to you, most of what I tell you today will be true. As true as true can be 180 years later. I'm going to tell you the story of the production of Macbeth that led to a full-scale riot on Broadway in New York City that left 22 people dead and over 100 injured. You said Macbeth? Yes, Macbeth. But before we get there... We have to set the stage. It's the 19th century, and we're in New York City. NYC! Can I? Yeah, sorry. Back in the day, theater was like church. Not in the sense of worship, but in the sense of space it utilized. Where a church might be used for worship, or a a courtroom for deciding the law, a theater was a space for public discourse. The riot we're building to is one of the reasons it's not that way anymore. How football games are now. That's what theater used to be. Spectators were expected, encouraged, to express their thoughts. Oh, my love, my wife, death, that hath sucked the honey of thy breath, hath had no power yet upon thy beauty. And she's not dead. Ah, dear Juliet, here will I remain with worms that are thy chambermaids. Oh, Here will I set up my everlasting rest. Mike, she's still breathing. Look at her. Here's to my love. Thy drugs are quick. Thus, with a kiss, I die. Wild waste. And as a testament to his popularity, audience members knew Shakespeare's plays to the line. If an actor messed up... Oh, Romeo, Romeo, why for art thou Romeo? It's wherefore, idiot! Fun fact! There was so much testosterone and toxic masculinity pumping through the public discourse in antebellum America that Romeo was considered too effeminate of a role for men to play. Too many feelings. So the only well-received Romeos of the day were women. Women Romeo were actually so popular that there was a production starring Charlotte Cushman sister of Susan Cushman, who played her Juliet. Romeo and Juliet were sisters? In high school, I knew a brother and sister who played Rolf and Liesel in The Sound of Music. Who and who? You are 16, going on 17. Oh, yeah. ew. Yeah, imagine how they felt. We are way off track. The point is that theater was rowdy. And women were Romeo. More so the toxic culture, but yeah, that, that too. A theater's success was gauged by how much the audience voiced their opinion. A silent crowd indicated a terrible show, and yet one heckler at one performance lit the fuse that would burn into one of the deadliest riots in American history. It was 1849, and there were two American pastimes, theater and rioting. If you thought Hamilton fans were annoying, you would have hated the 19th century. 
people treated Shakespeare actors the way they would treat Lizzo. The, the night of the riot, May 10th, there were not one, not two, but three productions of Macbeth playing within three blocks of each other. There was over 10,000 audience members between these three shows. That's a lot of Hamilton fans. Too many. So what caused the riot? Was it a really bad show? By all accounts, it was pretty good. Then what was the problem? There was a lot of mitigating circumstances, but if I had to pick an igniting event, I would pick this. There is a play tonight before the king. It's eight years earlier, 1840, and our first major character slash real-life human is William McCready. McCready is currently playing Hamlet to a packed house in Edinburgh, Scotland. We're coming up on the play within the play, and Hamlet is monologuing to his sidekick Horatio. Hamlet's line is, I must be idle. Since it's Shakespeare, there are a lot of ways you can read idle and have it make sense. He decided his interpretation of idle would include some stereotypes of how the idle-minded of the day behaved. Picture an inflatable dancing tube man, and you'd have something close to what he looked like. Here it comes. They are coming to the play! I must be idle! Get you a place! This choice was so bold that it solicited a response from an audience member. Okay, audience members could be assholes, fine. But there had to be rules, right? What if I started a fist fight with someone in the crowd? The police would break it up, right? I'm so glad you asked. The standing policy was that police would not interfere with any disruptions. It was actually considered a free speech issue. That'll become important later. McCready, ever the professional, took this outburst in stride. Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Step onto this stage, you coward! Wouldn't want that, fella. Then there'd actually be someone on stage who could act. <laughs> Determined to prove a point, McCready forged on with the performance, the remainder of which was uneventful. The person booing is one of our antagonists, Edwin Forrest. Depending on who you asked, Forrest was an even more popular actor than McCready, but where McCready was loved for his subtlety and grace... The guy who clomped across the stage was subtle? It was a different time. Where McCready was slight, Forrest was huge, a bear of a man. He roared across the stage and used his physicality to impart action. Tomorrow! And tomorrow! And tomorrow! Creeps in this pretty pace from day to day. Forrest was like the Michael Jordan of the stage. He dunked the ball every chance he got, and the audience loved him for it. He played to angry Irishmen and dock workers and builders of the day, as low as you could go on the social ladder and still be white. The bigger he got, the more they cheered. Forrest didn't act so much as yell, and his fame only grew. 
and he used that fame to bully his way into any venue he wanted. You see, Forrest really, really, really hated McCready. It wasn't just because he thought McCready was a bad actor. It was also because uh, he was British, specifically a foreigner. Forrest was a self-described Native American. I'm assuming that doesn't mean then what it means now? Now, you'd be correct. Back then, a self-described Native American was someone who hated anyone not native to America. Of course, real-life Native Americans weren't native. Black people weren't native. Even the Irish weren't native because they were still immigrants. You had to be white and born in America to white parents. Also not immigrants to be considered native. Sounds about white. This viewpoint bled into all aspects of Forrest's life. He sought to define American excellence, and MacReady represented a threat to that. And so he would bounce around the nation as MacReady's bitter shadow. MacReady played Hamlet in Chicago. Forrest played Hamlet in Chicago, but a block over. Hamlet, Macbeth, Julius Caesar, it didn't matter what role MacReady played. Forrest would play the same one as close as he could. <laughs> you like money, right? Uh, y- y- yes. Yeah, of course you do. You're a producer. What other purpose do you have? I also stage uh, manager. Produce me on your stage in the role of Hamlet this Saturday. This Saturday? But, but McCready is playing down the block in the role of Hamlet this Saturday. You can't expect me to play the same show the same Of course I can! Because I'm going to make you so much fucking money that your head spins! Come on! Do the right thing. And so it went. If Forrest was a huge actor, then McCready was a methodical one. He was a big fan of the dramatic pause. To be! Oh! Not to be. I know the line. He was just taking a really long time, is all. I'm aware of that. It's called acting. I pause to indicate thought, a concept clearly new to you. He was more popular with audience members than crew members. Hmm, let's try that again, shall we? To be! Or not! The line is... I know what the line is, you intolerable garbage bag of a human! Well, you get the gist. Regardless of their backstage antics, both Forrest and McCready had massive followings in the United States for wildly different reasons. Where Forrest was seen as a man's man, the quintessential American, McCready was seen as classical, refined, the way things used to be and should continue to be. The origin of America versus a bold new frontier. You mean to tell us that these actors were so popular, people rioted and died on their behalf? No, because they didn't. It's just that each man happened to be a lightning rod for a lot of simmering hostility. Class war was brewing. But before we get there, we must set the stage. At the turn of the 19th century, America was undergoing rapid change. In the span of a couple of decades, America doubled, both in size and population, and for the first time, urban centers were beginning to form. 
People no longer had to work the land all day to survive. Streets, infrastructure, beginnings of America's blood vessels spread and crept across the land. For the first time ever in America, people had spare time. Hey, Stu, what jobs you got today? Hey, Drew, I gotta... I need to... Well, hell, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Did you milk the cow? Yeah. Built the gazebo? Yeah. And what about dredging the river? I got it done last Tuesday. Well, I'll be damned. I guess you don't have anything to do. What do I do? And so, urbanites flocked to theaters where they were exposed to Shakespeare, minstrel shows, and radical speakers. I have used a word to which is attached an obnoxious meaning. Speak of change, and the world is in alarm. And yet, where do we not see change? What is there in the physical world but change? And what would there be in the moral world without change? The flower blossoms, the fruit ripens, the seed is received and germinates in the earth, and we behold the tree. The ailment we eat to satisfy our hunger incorporates with our frame, and the atoms composing our existence today are exhaled tomorrow. All is change. Within and about us, no one thing is as it was or will be as it is. Strange, then, that we should jump at a word used to signify a thing so familiar. Who was that? Fanny Wright, the most hated woman in America. <laughs> That's a high bar to clear, isn't it? What? Do you want the receipts? Fine. Where do you get a newspaper? And why does it smell? August 1st, 1828. The Christian Watchman. A disgrace to her sex. We regret to learn that Miss Frances Wright, who had the address to ingratiate herself into the favor of General Lafayette and to obtain from him $10,000 for the professed benevolent object of enabling slaves to work out the amount of their purchase money, has become editor of the New Harmony Gazette. Her principles appear to be as infidel and, of course, as lewd as those of the famous but visionary Robert Owen. We are pleased to learn, for the honor of our American ladies, that she is not a native of United States. Which just goes to show, the comment section existed well before the internet. Why did people hate her so much? In 1825, she was campaigning for the end of slavery. She decried organized religion, campaigned for women's right to vote, and most offensive of all, promoted birth control and sexual liberation for women. They called her the Great Red Harlot of Infidelity. After attending one of her seminars, Walt Whitman wrote in his journal, More than beautiful, she was grand. She possessed herself of my body and soul. Theater was the only place in America that you could truly consider a melting pot. It was the only place you could go and see rich and poor, black and white, men and unmarried women, and more than a common ground, theater was the battleground where new ideas were put to the test. And as with all cultural fads, clergy members would try to steer their flock away from the corrupting pull of theater. 
in a delightful bit of alliteration and a frightful bit of anti-Semitism, theaters would be referred to as synagogues of Satan. But I digress. Along MacReady's tour, tensions began to rise. Get thee to a nunnery! Why wouldst thou be a braider of sinners? I am myself indifferent, honest, but yet I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had not borne me. Oh, McCready! McCready, I've got something for you! I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious, with more offenses at my back than I have hey, thought to put them in. special delivery, compliments of your better, Edwin Forrest! Ha-ha! <laughs> Half of a sheep's carcass was tossed on stage. MacReady, ever the professional, carried on and finished the show. Once the curtains came down, MacReady reflected. I have had enough of this godforsaken land. Bullies and butchers on every corner. Perhaps it's time I return to the motherland. And yet, he persisted. MacReady decided that he would finish his farewell tour to spite all of the haters. Haters? More like ingraters. Sure. Unfortunately for MacReady, his farewell tour was set to close in the worst possible place, New York City. In the year 1800, there were around 80,000 people living in NYC. Within 20 years, its population had more than tripled. Tens of thousands of immigrants poured in from Ireland and Germany, countries that were going through their own famines, depressions, and upheavals. And if there's one constant through line in American history, it's adversity to outsiders, whomever the outsiders of the decade may be. All of those immigrants landed in America, and for many of them, New York has become their new home, specifically the Five Points neighborhood, because nowhere else would take them. The McAllisters live there. They're lovely people. I helped them sign their lease just last week. Ah, Tubi, this one's you. It should be unlocked. Once we get in, you are going to fall in love. Love, I tell you, with this place. It just... shoulder into it. Does that uh, happen often? No! Almost never! Sometimes. Oh, what do we think? Isn't she beautiful? It's a little smaller than I thought. You made it sound big. All it needs is a little cleaning and it'll open right up. Follow me in here and you'll see the dining room, a stove, and sink. Very modern. Very exciting. Uh, should they be that close together? Of course. Who doesn't like hot water? Don't drink the water. Wait, why shouldn't we drink the water? And if you follow me over here, you can get a glimpse of your marvelous view of Bowery Street. Just across the street, you'll see the gorgeous old brewery boarding house. Don't go there after dark. What? Why not? Urban legend says a murder was committed every single night there for 15 years. <laughs> no reason. 
And if you look in the opposite direction, you can practically imagine the Atlantic. Oh my god. Breathtaking, isn't it? No, someone's getting mugged down there. What? Where? Right there. Oh, that's nothing. That's just Isaiah Rinder's boys blowing off a little steam. Uh. Did I mention it's only a five-minute commute to the docks? You are a dock worker, I take it. I am. I am. They're, uh, they're lighting the body on fire. What can I say? Boys will be boys. Let's step away from this beautiful view. So, what are our thoughts? Well, there are some issues. I just have to consider it a stutter home or apartment. So? So beggars can't be choosers, I suppose. We'll take it. Fantastic! I'll start drafting up the paperwork. When would be a good time for you to meet the other families? What's that now? Lee's? As in more than one? <laughs> Just two, though. Three family, three families for 300 square feet? Isn't New York the best? Land of the free, indeed. If living conditions were unideal, then working conditions were downright dangerous. Enter Isaiah Reinder, father of the boys you just heard about. He was New York's first ever crime boss, and he was known for, and, and this is true, reciting Shakespeare to his victims. My stars shine darkly over me. The malignancy of my fate might perhaps distemper yours. Therefore I shall crave of you your leave, that I may bear my evils alone. It were a bad recompense for your love to lay any of them on you. Thoughts? I liked it. Of course you liked it. I pay you to like it. I'm talking to him. It, it, it was fine. Fine? No, no. The performance was good. It's just... What? I, I don't want this to be taken incorrectly. I'm asking you for feedback, right? I can't get better if I don't get criticism. The choice of monologue is interesting. I mean, Twelfth Night? The cross-dressing play? Not exactly intimidating if you recognize the source. Well, how many Shakespeare nerds do you think I bring in here to interrogate? I, I, I get that. I do. I'm just saying what I'm seeing. You could have picked Macbeth. Richard III, Titus Andronicus. What are you, a fucking critic? <laughs> Look at you, just standing around, jaw agape. Clean this shit up. We got a load of cod coming in. Cod was the coke of its day. Not in the illegal sense, but in the absolute money-making potential of it. Whoever controlled the cod controlled the money, and Isaiah Rinders owned the dock workers, so he dictated the flow of money. There wasn't much in New York that he didn't happen without his approval. For instance, when he got wind that a presidential candidate he didn't like might win the state of New York and thus the election of 1844, he disapproved. Evening, folks. Can I have your attention? If I was all of you, I'd listen. Hey, was that so hard? Now that I have your undivided and utmost attention, a word, a moment of your time. 
Now I understand the urgency of the day. Election day is the only day we're called on to do our duty. As proverbs say, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk only leads to poverty. A concept foreign to the fucking lot of you, I know, but now is the time for hard work. Cowards die many times, and now is the time to be brave, to forgo yourself and your worst inclinations. As I understand it, this is a fairly liberal neighborhood, is it not? Lots of fans of abolition and Texas independence in here. Lots of soft pink bodies. Here's what I'm going to do as my favor from me and my boys to you. A pass through the door. An opportunity to better yourselves and your country and abstain from voting. Consider it a gift to your community. Take a stroll down Bowery and enjoy this fresh fall air. And if we spirits have offended, then fuck off. Show them the doors, boys. Rinders and a thousand of his boys tour New York and intimidate any voter they can. Anyone who looks like they might vote for the opposition is beaten, harassed, or pelted with clay. Anyone undecided is rounded up and escorted to the nearest voting booth with strong words of encouragement. The polls close and James K. Polk is elected the 11th president of the United States. And what happened to Rinders? Was, was he arrested? Close. Polk gave him a no-show job in New York Customs so he could collect a full-time check from the U.S. taxpayers in exchange for his contribution to democracy, which gave him even more time for mob boss things. Things like starting a riot over a production of Macbeth. But for what purpose? Well, don't forget that Rinders was a Shakespeare fan. He had a stake in the Forrest McCready debate. He himself was a fan of Forrest, since Forrest wasn't a foreigner. But his real drive was to embarrass the Whigs, the political party currently in charge of New York. And what better way to make your government look ineffectual than by starting a riot? How do you stage a riot? Don't they just happen? Think of a riot as a fire. For a fire, there are only three crucial ingredients. Oxygen, fuel, and heat. The oxygen is people. The individuals breathing life into the riot. The fuel are the conditions that lead to the riot. Economic woes, racial tension, too much dry grass, and, and the heat can come from any number of places. Too dry of conditions and the sun will do the job itself. Sometimes lightning will strike and set something ablaze. And sometimes... There's an arsonist! Let a guy finish a thought, will you? Jeez! Where was I? Rinders allegedly staged a riot. Uh, well, it didn't take uh, much work. Rinders' neighborhood was packed to the brim with the disenfranchised. He didn't have to work them up. He, he just had to point them in the right direction. And... He couldn't have asked for a better fuel source than the Astor Place Opera House. What was so bad about it? For the poor and disgruntled, Astor Place was everything wrong with the world. It was named in honor of John Jacob Astor, the Jeffrey Bezos of his day. Uh, see if this sounds familiar. September 6th, 1945, the new metropolis. 
It would take 3,500 men working 20 years, 300 days without being sick or out of employment an hour the whole time, and getting a dollar a day without spending a cent. It would take all of that to earn what John Jacob Astor has saved from what the world calls his industry. Industry, of course, being cod. For the record, a uh, dollar a day in 1845 money would be equivalent to about $46 per hour wage today. To put all of this in the modern context, it would be like going to see a production of Hamilton at the Basils Theater and tickets cost two grand minimum, and you could only attend if you wore an outfit designed specifically by Vera Wang. That kind of makes me want to go flip a car over and light it on fire. Oh, it gets worse. The, the theater was highbrow. It catered to only the richest and enforced a strict dress code for all of its patrons. Excuse me, kind sir. You cannot attend. Wait, you mean I can't attend? You are not dressed for the evening, sir. I'm wearing my best flannel. Uh-huh. Uh, sir, if you read the sign out front... I can't read. Mm -hmm. So it seems. So what's it say? All attendees of the evening's festivities must don a suit or dress, must be clean-shaven, and most importantly of all, must be wearing a pair of clean, white gloves. Gloves? How am I supposed to afford those? You have the rest of the evening to figure it out, seeing as your plans have just opened up. Good evening, and goodbye. It is May 7th, 1849. Opening tonight, Macbeth at the Astor Place Theater, starring William Charles McCready in the final venue of his farewell tour. Also opening tonight, Macbeth at the Broadway Theater, starring Edwin Forrest. Also opening tonight, Macbeth at the Bowery Theater, located in the center of the scenic Five Points neighborhood, starring Thomas Hablin. Who? Exactly. A producer. He's cashing in on the controversy by selling tickets to those who weren't able to get into the other sold-out performances. He will be performing the role of Macbeth, and he will sell every single seat. Across town, Rinders has been busy. He and his supporters have purchased over 500 tickets to tonight's performance of Macbeth and distributed those to his boys. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. It is seven o'clock, and the doors are open. If you need any help finding your seat... There are ushers at every door who can... Hey, coming through! Pardon you! Uh, excuse me? As the clock creeps towards 7.30, audience members notice more and more unsavory people wandering in. Gentlemen not of leisure, but of labor. They were not clean-shaven, did not wear a suit or gloves, and they reeked of cod. Remember how I said audience members were expected to voice their thoughts? The start of the show was always decided by the audience. McCready hears what he thinks is a roar of applause and takes to the stage to begin the show.
for him, but not in the sense he wants. I understand you're all excited, but it is time for the show to begin. McCready attempts to go on with the show. A petition circulates amongst the wealthy. You see, dear chap, if you leave for England, the, the, the poor folk will have won. We built the Astor Place so we could spend the night away from the rabble, and, and they have the indecency to demand access to our space. <laughs> this is a matter of principle, Sir McCready. Do you want to be on the right side of history? Please, for our sakes, return to the Astor Place this Saturday and complete your performances of Macbeth. <laughs> After all, the show must go on! <laughs> Tata signed affectionately, the 47 wealthiest and most influential man of New York City, 1849. This is the gist of their plea to McCready. It's not one of his better moments, but Herman Melville, and the author of A Little Whale of a Tale, Moby Dick, includes his name among the signatures. The letter had its intended effect. What kind of actor, nay, artiste, would I be if I were to ignore such a handsome request from my most fervent fans? McCready agrees to return to the stage this upcoming Thursday, May 10th. What happens between now and then is a bit hazy. Certainly, tensions rise across the board. The mayor of New York City will assemble every available policeman and militiaman available to his call, an abysmal 600 in total. And Reinders, well, he's making sure people stay angry. As we speak, his boys are plastering flyers across town. Attention, working men! 
Shall Americans or English rule this city? The crew of the British steamer have threatened all Americans who shall dare to express their opinions on this night at the English aristocratic opera house. We advocate no violence, but a free expression of opinion to all public men. Working men, free men, stand by your lawful rights. Signed, the American Committee. Thursday comes, and the Astor Place has done what they can to prepare. Windows bought it up. Check. One hundred and fifty police officers positioned inside. Check. A cage assembled in the basement to contain any unruly audience members. Check. Screened all tickets. Um... Unsure of the best way to prevent protesters from getting inside the theater, the Astor Place decides to put small black marks on the trustworthy tickets. 7.30 rolls around again, and the protesters try to start the show. But the ticket screening worked, and significantly less agitators have found their way to a seat. To single out the troublemakers, a final measure is used. The stage manager walks on stage with a sign that reads, The friends of order will remain silent. And it works. McCready's fans fall totally silent while the protesters continue to make themselves heard. The police escort them to the cages downstairs and the show begins. Unfortunately for the actors and audience, weeding out the internal protesters does absolutely nothing to diminish the staggering 10,000 protesters who have gathered just outside the theater. Shortly after the show begins, so too does the assault on the Astor Place Opera House. We had a war over this! America rules England! The protest picks up steam once protesters discover a nearby construction site burdened with too many cobblestones. Move them down the line! A human chain is formed and cobblestones are passed hand over hand until they reach the theater at which point they become... Aim! Lord! Ammunition! Injured! We have injured! Hey! Launch! Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand. Come, let me clutch thee. Okay, please, the show is not worth this. We need to stop this. Outside, the militia has been called in. The cavalry is the first to arrive. Hey! Launch! Some militiamen are pulled from their horses as they charge into the crowd. The situation continues to deteriorate, but don't worry, the mayor happens to be here. Mayor! Sir! Please! Let us fire our weapons! If you think that is the correct decision to discharge your weapons, then by all means, I won't tell you not to do that. If you indeed do think that it's the right thing to do at the moment in time. I just need a yes or no. Hmm? Did you hear that? Sir? I swear I hear someone saying, Mayor, Mayor, someone needs me, I should go. Sir! But the mayor's gone, and he won't be returning. Coincidentally, the play inside has reached its climax. Bring it off to me! I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. 
The forces of Macduff have come to claim the revenge for the death of their king, Duncan. Macbeth stands against a siege of scorn, and for a brief moment, art imitates life. Hang out our banners on the outward walls! The cry is still, they come! Our castle's strength will laugh a siege to scorn! The crowd inside goes wild as the crowd outside goes wild! Fire into the air! We don't want any injuries! Is anyone hurt? Anyone? No! They're firing blanks! Aim lower! Just over the head! They kill an American from the British! And then, without warning... Reload! Aim! Fire! The crowd is finally driven back. Lafayette Street is riddled with bullet holes, cobblestones, and pools of blood. Over 20 protesters lay dead, with dozens more injured. Dozens of injured police, too. In the cold light of day, things get worse. Please, please. Questions one at a time. Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mayor, is there any truth to the statement that the Astor Opera House will be blown up? That's not a statement. That's a rumor. Next question. What do you want? Mr. Mayor, is there any truth to the statement that your house will be burned down? None. Next question. Do you not see the crowd of other people with questions? Will there be any more violence tonight? I can promise you there will not be any further violence. Just today, 1,000 deputies and 2,000 infantrymen have come into New York. We are more than prepared for any further issues. The city has never been safe. Do you have anything to say to the citizens of New York? Those who are scared and angry after the murders at the Opera House? Murders? To all the citizens of New York City, after witnessing the, the deplorable actions of last evening, I can only say this. Shame on you. You think you have the right to protest as you please? To disrupt the evening and leisure of those who make more than you can even dream about? And there are rumors of some of yous trying to act tough? I would advise against that. We've arrested dozens of you, and we would cherish the opportunity to arrest dozens more. And good luck trying to arm yourselves. My office was informed today that the agitators of last evening attempted to rent 2,000 firearms for recreational use. This is America, and you can't even afford a gun. You know what a business loves more than renting? Buying. And who has more money than me and my friends? You and your anger are a joke. This is what I say to every citizen of New York who's thinking of coming out tonight you do not have a monopoly on violence. That evening, anywhere between 10 and 25,000 furious people gathered downtown. Orator after orator spoke to the crowd until Rinder takes the stage. Friends, Germans, Irishmen, lend me your ears. I come to offer the truth, not reconciliation. The evil that men do lives after them. The good dies with them. Rinders goes on and on, decrying foreigners, the rich, freed and captive slaves alike, anyone he could target as less than American. 
it doesn't reach the entire crowd just enough. 5,000 march on Astor Place, torches ablaze. When they arrive, they are greeted with cannon barrels pointed down the avenue. Despite a long and tense standoff, violence doesn't erupt, and the crowd goes home. The Astor Place riots have come to a close. What happens next? Another 127 years of history. Care to narrow it down? I, I meant from the riots. Did Rinders ever go to jail? No. He went into politics. And what about Forrest? He saw his popularity dwindle after the riot. And as for MacReady, he left for England, never to return to America. For cultural impact, the newspapers of the time tell us very much and very little. Articles were split along party lines, whether the riot was even a riot, or whether it was a tragedy or a resounding success. To the capitalists of the old world, the recent Astor Place riots should demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that your assets will be protected here in America. Yes, there was disruption, and yes, some damage was done, but the police did not hesitate to shoot those who sought to bring harm to a renowned institution. What other countries could claim they have such resolve? Versus the other side of the aisle. No good can come of the recent tragedy at the Astor Opera House. How can any continue knowing what they know now, that Americans despise the sight of one another? Even after the repairs are made and the dead are mourned, there is lasting damage to the American fabric, a loss of neighborly attitudes. It is a shame and tragedy that will have untold consequences. Shortly after the riots, the Astor Place Opera House was permanently closed. Its insides were gutted, and the building was converted into the New York Mercantile Library until it was demolished in 1890 and replaced with the building that stands there today. And for real long-term effects, the Astor Place riot led to the strengthening and militarization of the nation's first police force, the NYPD. That's a bummer. I don't mean to imply that no good came from these events. The need for a shared public space did not go unheard. Shortly after the riots, the plans were cemented for what we now know today as Central Park, a bastion of nature in the city that never sleeps. Well tamed, and like a buzzard. O oh, slow-winged turtle, shall a buzzard take thee? Aye, for a turtle, as he takes the buzzard. Wasp, in faith, you were too angry. Just a couple of miles from the spot where so many died, people of all classes and backgrounds can come see Shakespeare in the park for free. Aye, if the fool could find where it flies. Who knows not where a wasp does wear his sting? In his tail? In his tongue. Whose tongue? Yours, if you talk of tails. And so, farewell. What, with my tongue and your tail? Nay, come again, good kid. I am a gentleman. That I'll try. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this month's play. The goal of Barely There Theater is to create plays and entertainment for people free of charge, anywhere they want, anytime they want. Subscribe to us for mostly weekly updates with new audio plays, rehearsals, and whatever else might come up. We do ask that if you liked what you just listened to, consider donating to us at our website, barelytheretheater.com. 
And if you're in a position where you can't afford to donate, that's okay too. Consider passing this episode along to someone who you think will enjoy it. Get a hold of us at our email address, feedback at barelytheretheater.com, or leave a comment below if you're listening on YouTube. Tune in in the upcoming weeks for a behind-the-scenes look at the rehearsal process of the play you just listened to, where you can hear the growth, bloopers, and whatever tangents we may spiral off into. Once again, thanks for listening to Barely There Theater.